Hello, and welcome to Healing from Within. I am your host, Cheryl Glick, author of Life is No Coincidence, The Life and Afterlife Connection, and The Living Spirit, Answers for Healing and Infinite Love, which shares stories of spiritual awakening and communication and ways to improve through intuition our personal and collective life story, guiding us to health happiness, and purposeful action, even in the midst of terrible challenges. I am most delighted today to welcome Jack Hirsch, author of Death March Escape, a tale of survival of body and spirit in a time of the Holocaust, not that long ago during the Second World War, when insanity and terror ruled the world and death was everywhere. Hello, Jack, and thank you for joining me today, most especially to tell the story of your father, David Hirsch, and his remarkable story of a man who not once but twice escaped death by the Nazis at the end of World War II, due to what I believe is an incredible combination of luck, faith, and will to survive that made him unique. Hi, Cheryl. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Jack, as listeners of Healing from Within are well aware, my guests and I seek to understand our dual nature as spiritual beings experiencing the physical life and learning through history, metaphysics, science, religion, and spirituality ways to understand human nature and how we may survive challenges or hardships through the energy and courage of the soul. In today's episode of Healing from Within, Jack Hirsch will share a truly remarkable journey of his father, who, as we said just now, not only once, but twice survived death as a teenager, being taken from his hometown of Dej, Hungary, to a madhouse in concentration camp, which was one of the harshest, cruelest camps in the German Reich. After his father's Death. A photograph of his father surfaced on the Mutthausen website and sent Jack on a journey back in time to learn of secrets his father had never shared with him. Jack, I always love to ask my guests to think back to their childhood and remember a person, a place, an event, or an interest that they might have that might have shown them or others the person they might become and the lifestyle they might embrace as an adult, because I feel we're all born with a destiny and life plan and must experience what leads us to develop our most empowered soul. So think back for a minute. Well, I, I think in my father's case, or in my case, and especially as it relates to the book, there's a perfect time uh, event in my life, and that actually was a recurring event. So every Passover, Passover, of course, is the... Uh, the, the holiday that commemorates the Jews escaping, or at least leaving Egypt some 3,000 years ago. And the first night of Passover, for the Orthodox, two nights, um, you have a meal, and at the meal you recount uh, the, those, that escapade of escape or, and, and from the Egyptians. And my father would always digress from that story to tell his story of his two escape, his time in, his year in a concentration camp, and as you pointed out, Mutthausen, the worst camp in the Reich, and then his two escapes. Um, I've heard that story at least twice a year, every year, for most of my upbringing and, and a lot of my adult life. Um, and I think I didn't realize it at the time, but hearing that story, knowing what he accomplished, sort of drove me to 
to accomplish as much as I possibly could, and not just in terms of being professionally successful, which I think is sometimes a lot of luck, but things like I fly airplanes and I do, I study martial arts and I teach and I ski. Uh, I'm an all mountain skier. I, I just I do I do a lot of things that I know people do one or two of. Not everybody does all of them, and so I think knowing that story, having it driven into me so often. That if you take life into your own hands, you can you can possibly alter its outcome. Has turned me into who I am. Yeah, what he gave you was what he had—a zest for life and living to the fullest. Yeah, and it's real life. Well, he really he had you. that, but he also took chances. He took those chances when he escaped those two times. That was remarkable risk taking. I mean, you could argue that well, he knew that he would die otherwise, but he didn't really know he would die. He was on a death march both times and both escapes was just for him a an instantaneous split second opportunity to maybe get away and he took him he was a little bit of a risk taker and i think knowing his penchant for that um and that it saved his life sort of turned me into that a little bit of one as well well that's wonderful and that's how it should be we shouldn't have the fears we should have always the hope that we're we don't walk this life alone i believe as a medium and an intuitive uh, that we have a great deal of help from spirit and uh we have a destiny and a life path and they help us at different points some of us are aware of it some of us are not aware of it but it doesn't really matter it, it, it's it's something that will help us go beyond procrastination and fear to find joy and happiness and love because there's only two emotions in in the world really fear or love and we're always moving from the state of fear and that includes a lot of other things you know distrust and disease and disaster and that's all under fear to love and compassion and healing and vitality and risk taking <laughs> so yeah i i do feel that way but let's go on to tell of some of the characters and places in the story um the connections that helped them perhaps survive the trauma of those crazy soulless times but there was still hope and love even in those crazy hopeless times of hatred so tell us about some of the people that your father told you about or you learned about when you went on your own journey well i to build up to the last one i'll, I'll save sort of best for last i think um in my father's case there were uh, a block out tester there was a guy who was in charge of his block his his barracks um who exhibited a little bit of compassion toward him that he probably didn't need to have exhibited uh my father's first escape um he was found eventually by the ss um, and taken, not killed, although he probably should have been, instead taken to a police station, a gendarmerie, they call it, sort of like it's like having a state police, a gendarme in Europe. And the gendarme there um, ordered the, uh, he, he outranked these SS soldiers, and he ordered them to leave, and he allowed my father to sleep the night in his jail. He fed him dinner, he had fed my father breakfast, and he got him back to Mudhausen in one piece. So that was a remarkable person. Then, of course, the family that, that the husband and wife who rescued my father after his second escape harbored him for three weeks in their home and in their field until the American 65th Infantry Division came through. And that yeah. was just those you know, were the Freedmen's. Yeah, I remember reading the, about the, the Freedmen's. Yes, Freedmen. and to be clear to, to your listeners, um, these they were not Jewish. Although it's an, Amer an Americans would think of Freedmen as a Jewish name, they were not Jewish. They did this 
for no other reason other than the goodness of their heart. It was the right thing to do. When they came across my father the morning after he'd escaped, um, they saved his life. They, they harbored him for three weeks at risk of their own life. And, mm-hmm. you know, they were just remarkable people. I met their, their grandchildren, a son and a daughter, a grandson and a granddaughter. The son is no longer alive. I, didn't, I never met him. Um, and, I mean, what do you say to people like that? They, they, they without the, the goodness of the heart of their, their grandparents, um, I wouldn't be here. I think, Jack, you say, <laughs> thank you from the depths of my heart that I'm, but that I'm I, here. Believe me, yeah, thank you is a believe blessing. Believe me, I said that multiple times to them. Yeah, it's a um, and then, of course, in my in my journey of discovery of a lot of my father's story that he never told. My father told the highlights. He told the good stuff. He he didn't. He never quite went into the horrors that he really actually went through. And I only discovered them in going back to the camp and and getting to know some of the camp historians who helped me a lot in my research. Um, and the the goodness of their heart to to make the effort to first of all help me and second of all to try to. To, to, to take a mission in their lives so that people, to be sure that people do not forget what happened in Mudhausen. Yeah, you know, you know what a lot of people forget? They they think that it was only Jewish people who were killed in the concentration camps. But there were many good people, Christians and, and atheists, and it just people, communist people of all different well, persuasions. Actually, 12 million people died in the concentration camps. Well, that's right, Carol. Which means it was six million Jews and it was six million others. It was communists and it was the intelligentsia and it was it was incorrigible POWs. It was it was the the disabled. It was gays. Um, It was anyone who didn't fit into a perfect Aryan society or show the slightest inclination towards uh, rebelliousness was in a camp. And Mudhausen, since you mentioned it. Mudhausen in particular was not a Jewish camp. There's there's an argument to be made that my, the the historians made to me. My father spent three months in a hospital or in an infirmary in the camp, and he probably wasn't at, by the end of those three months sick enough to remain there. But they kept him there potentially because the other prisoners didn't want to have a Jew in the camp, so, oh, so he stayed in the infirmary wow. instead. I was wondering why he stayed so long in the infirmary. I oh no, yeah, you just we don't really know. We wow. can only guess. That is something. Mm. All right, let's go on to. You say a picture surfaced on the website of the Munhausen concentration camp, uh, and your father there was. Uh, I guess he was about eighteen, seventeen. Yes, yeah, seventeen, eighteen. All picture, right. Yes. And so, what did you find out about your father? When you went back to that uh, to the camps and to that location on your own personal journey, because you were beginning to feel on the last Passover that you had with your father that perhaps there was more perhaps he wanted to say to you, but he was still holding back some of the more traumatic maybe he had dissociated as psychologists talk about when you go through a horrible trauma, uh, you have a dissociation factor there and you went and what did you learn about him that you didn't know and also about yourself well those are great questions I, I, what I learned about him was a few things first of all again I heard the story in this in this engaging and interesting and I won't say funny but on occasion he would laugh about some of the things what I learned going back is that first of all what he went through was far more horrific than he ever 
made sure to get across to me. Um, you know, I stood in the, a building that he worked by. It was called the Stone Crusher, and in fact, it was a mechanical stone crusher, the largest in Europe. And one of his jobs was to load up mine carts with granite, push those mine carts a few hundred yards, and then unload them in front of the stone crusher. Standing in front of that building and imagining this man, my father, working there 14 hours a day, seven days a week, rain or shine, warm or cold, um, you know, it, it was a stunning realization that this was not this was not simple duty. This was backbreaking, life threatening, horrific mm. times that he went through. And so I think the the first thing I learned about him was the realization that it was way harder, way more difficult, way more remarkable his his survival than I ever gave him credit for, than I ever imagined I needed to. He never lost it. I mean, he'd always been a funny guy, and after the war, he was a funny, interesting, life of the party guy. You know, he was not your your typical what we know of as a, as a typical survivor. The right. The um the one we read about and the one we see in movies and television, he was a you would never know. And even if he told you the story, you wouldn't. He'd be telling you the story, and you'd you'd, you'd have you'd say, well, really? I mean, you don't fit the mold. But he and he didn't fit the mold. What people thought um, survivors looked like, he was as ordinary of a guy as you could imagine, as interesting and funny of a guy as you can imagine. And well, that's how he got through life. I think I think that that part of his. Uh personality was very helpful you also state in the book that he was he was handsome he looks actually on the face of the the cover of the book he looks like an actor from that time i can't remember the name but he looks like an actor that that was him yeah so he was handsome he was funny he was uh, a hard worker and he had a will a spirit and a strength to live and i will tell you personally i feel he was supposed to live because we all have a plan and destiny and uh, it's not a only luck it's a lot of things that go into what he survived well i think i think you two things you make your own luck but as the historian as you read the historians of the camp who none of whom were jewish turned to me early in my in my experience with them in my research with them and said to me you know your father was the recipient of six miracles um, they were it. convinced of it and they, and, they t- and they took them off for me they had in their minds six separate times that they could identify that that you know, and a higher power interceded to make sure he survived. Um, That's what I'm very yeah. much trying to say here. Now, even when his mother, when they came into the camp and they separated the men from the women and she was on a line and and he looked at her and he sort of sensed he wasn't going to see her again, she had yeah. told him that he would go on a train one day, first class, it was a prophecy. Yes, yes. It was it was it, a vision really, she had and a hope for him, and he held on to that. And I, I I know as a medium, as an intuitive, I know she gave him a great gift, and he fulfilled that gift and his destiny. Yeah, I think it's yes. wonderful. Yeah. Yes, that that struck you obviously in reading it. Yes, it did. Yes, it it certainly did. Now we are living in modern times. The age of social media and iPhones, computers, and, of course, advanced technology, yet there seems to be a return or inflammation of anti-Semitism, or perhaps it never really changes. I don't like to think that, but 
what would you say we might try to do to help people curb hatred, religious or racial prejudice and begin to heal the world once again? Well, I think I think we have to realize that's a big we're question. Yeah, that's yeah, a, yes, it is. But but I but I think there's a simple answer. I think we are all the same person. The color of our skin is not relevant. The color, the 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 the, the, um, the religious star that we are born under is not relevant. We're all the same. We all have the same needs and loves and desires and fears. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think. You know, uh, I've gone back to the concentration camp a number of times. I've met many, many people who lived in the area, some who were living there as, as um, you know, residents of nearby areas during the war, most though of whom were, whose parents were there, but they were not. And, you know, to a man and a woman, when I meet these people, I, I can sense that they just don't understand how we could have looked at another human being and said, you're not as worthy. Um, you know, and again, in, in, in my family's case, it was because we were Jewish. In other families' cases, it's because they or one of them were communists, or they were gay, or mm-hmm. perhaps because they were they were black. Because I actually don't don't know what the, the what the Germans did with, in that case. But but regardless, we're the same. The, the lesson has to be: no one's different from anybody else. And no one should treat anybody differently than they treat anybody else. It's the lesson from Hillel, you know, um, uh, what, what do we learn from the, if you could tell, tell us what I learned, what I would learn from the Bible by standing on one foot well, treat, treat others as you would want yourself treated. Absolutely, yeah. The golden rule. The golden rule. And we are energetically, yes. spiritually, soul-wise, all of the same light. So in a, in our humanity, we are all of that soul energy. So, yes, we have physical differences or religious differences uh, or intellectual interests and needs, but you're right. We all want to love and be loved. We all, all want to think that there is a God or a spirit or a creative force that has put us on this earth to find something beautiful through nature and through interactions with people. And and that makes us part of the human family. And that's true. But I was thinking of something else also. Maybe learning that the Nazis didn't coin the term, which was in your book, concentration camp. It originated in the late 1800s, referring to refugee camps in, in which people were concentrated during Spain's 10-year war. And we had, uh, during World War II, we had the Japanese in camps here in California, and uh, all these camps were overcrowded and unhealthy places, and they were used for uh, slave labor. Uh, so uh, wherever it is, however it is, in uh, Syria they've had that, and uh, in Somalia and all kinds of places this has been done. And also think back of the slaves being packed into the old-fashioned ships brought from Africa to many places in the world, Right. So this right. has gone oh, on, right. gone on and on. And so as we are evolving and we are in a spiritual evolution and the world is in an awakening process right now, this is what's going to eventually help people start to realize they can't even say these things. They can't even think these things. They can't even be part of this type of feeling of hatred because it just won't be accepted anymore. Too many of us are awakening and feel the pain of it and are going to try to help them find their own way eventually. We can't change anyone, but we can set a good example. 
we can do what's right, and in that way, hopefully, uh, they will eventually also learn what's what's right for them. So uh, I know when you made the journey back to the place of so much suffering, you really figured out pretty much what went on with your father. And uh, what have you learned about yourself as a result of that? Well, I think um, first and foremost, I learned, you know, who, where I came from. Um, I learned that, um, you know, the, the person that I've become was heavily molded by the person my father was. Um, I learned, you know, about myself that uh, I don't have to try to compete with my father. Um, you know, I think we all do to some degree. We compete with our parents. Um, you know, we want to either be exactly like them or surpass them or, or you know, be good in their eyes. Um, I'm never going to surpass what my father pulled off. No, no one will. I mean, um, you know, what he did was, with his accomplishment of surviving Mudhausen was, was a remarkable event, and it, it's not anything I can equal. But I have to be satisfied with what I have in my life, and I have a lot. Um, I have a lot to be thankful for. Um, and I think it, that trip back, when it came comes to how I reacted to it, it was it was a realization that, you know, I I've got things things are pretty good for me. Compared to what my father had to go through, compared to what so many European Jews and so many Europeans themselves, non Jews, went through, I have mm. it pretty good and, and I should be grateful and thankful for that. So then 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 you learn to appreciate life that your father survived through and life that you have and you've learned there's no one to compare yourself to either because we are all our unique, you know, soul going through this life the way we make choices uh, to go through it. And sometimes we encounter a challenge, but then again we have the choice to be the person we want to be no matter what. And I, I think you learned that. And you wrote this. I studied the field called Revere at the Matthausen built by Russian prisoners after Hitler and Stalin were no longer working together, which they then called Sanitaslager, or the sanitary camp, which was used for very sick prisoners. I studied the field more closely. My father had been somewhere on that turf for three months. Though it is now barren, I easily picture row after row of German field gray barracks filling the field when Dad was, uh, I don't know how you pronounce this, K-Z-L-E-R. A Ketzetler. Okay, Ketzetler there. This is why I have come. Mm. This is what I want to see. Places where my father existed, mm. places where he persevered, places where he beat the odds. I think about how thousands of lives were stolen here to produce the granite facades and roadbed of Hitler's Germany. I tell Angelica, my guide, that I cannot imagine facing this sinister mass every morning for years, as some of these prisoners did. I have the unmistaken impression that I am experiencing the same feeling he felt during his first days in the camps when he lost track of time and dissociated from the environment, severing himself from the reality to cope with the extremes uh, we were seeing and feeling. And I felt that reading your book. I felt it very deeply, Mm -hmm. and I think people who read your book 
will understand what a struggle it was to be in a time to un- see people treat people this way and we that will be part of the healing and understanding that we can't do this anymore there's no room for it in a modern day civilized world so uh, but what i was going to say is that you know what apropos what we're talking about when i decided to write the book it was because of an interesting event that i had experienced i had a business dinner and every once in a while in business dinners this my father's story would come up. I, I can't even begin to tell you why. We'd be talking about the war, or we'd be talking about something, and I would mention what my father went through. And this one particular dinner in the end of 2015, I get a phone call the next morning. The guy, it was one of the guys at dinner, he says to me, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, he says. He says, I've never met a survivor. I've never met anyone that I've known to be related to a survivor, and I've never heard of a story like that in my life. And the story has overnight changed my life. Nothing will ever appear difficult to me again because I now know what your father went through and survived, and it changed my perspective on my life. And I said, well, if that's true of him, that's got to be true of thousands of people, millions of people, I need to, and I need to put the story on paper, and so I did. Yes, and, and that's what we want readers to take away with them after reading your book. But you had something that I want readers to take away with them after reading the book. Uh, you saw, written on the memorial, the eastern wall, which contains ten plaques. They're all identical except, except for the language. And the English plaque was all in capital letters and without punctuation. And it reads, within these walls... On the actual site where it was built under the Nazi regime remains the crematory of Gusen I and Gusen II, Mauthausen. And from 1940 to 1945, more than 37,000 patriots of all nationalities were incinerated there after having known the most cruel physical and moral suffering. They died for the independence of their countries for liberty, for the salvation of man. May the memory of their sacrifice forever remain in the thoughts of the living. And uh, I think even though the words may be a little inadequate to you and not enough to memorialize all that went on there, it still is the best way to memorialize concentration camps because we've got to remember and honor those who were murdered uh, and leave these camps there for people to continue to know. Just like Twin Towers once stood, you wrote this, and is hallowed ground and never to be built upon, so no one forgets. So I think perhaps that's what you might. I certainly want people to remember that. So I want to thank you, Jack J. Hirsch, author of Death March Escape, for sharing the authentic story of your father's spiritually guided survival of the Holocaust and the descriptions of the death camps, Auschwitz, Birkenau, as well as Matthausen, where he finally made the death march at the end of the war when the Germans knew the Allies would soon be there and miraculously and spiritually guided, I believe. He escaped and was taken in by a family who hid him. To learn more about this infamous time where humanity and sanity were lost and people descended into madness and sorrow, read this book and purchase it at Amazon.com. In summarizing today's episode of Healing from Within, with a discussion with Jack, the son of a Holocaust survivor, David Hirsch, 
who carried the partial hurt and pain, knowing that many in his father's family and friends had not survived this war, um, but a war by a world out of control, who sought to eliminate those who they simply deemed unworthy to live due to either religious or cultural standards. We have learned how unconscionable it is to think that people can be so devoid of emotion and moral codes which could even entertain murderous ideas. But it happened. And right now in this moment, there are anti-Semitic and anti-Christians here in America and in the work world forces at work trying to reenact some of this hateful, hateful rhetoric. And Jack wrote, and I want you to remember and hear this, in the camp, it wasn't just on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, but I prayed to God every day in the camps. Every day, my father's eyes welled up for a second time that evening during the Passover dinner when he was telling us this story. Maybe he was thinking of his parents right then. I knew he never doubted that his survival was not happenstance, was not just luck, was not just the force of his upbeat personality and monumental willpower. In his view, he'd had help. His mother's last word to him that we discussed earlier in the show, that he would take a luxury train ride one day, a premonition was proof. My father had held on to the possibility of that train trip and held on to God making it reality. And when he survived, he committed himself to saying those same few prayers he had said every day in the camps, to saying thank you to every day for the rest of his life. Jack and I would have you remember the same way his father's faith saw him through the most life-threatening events every day for years. We believe God watches over us, our family as well. We may not have scientific proof, but in our heart and soul, we know life is not random, and each experience, whether we see it as good or bad, ultimately leads our soul to refine and get closer uh, to the divine force of life. And holding on to that faith is the key, perhaps, to eternal life. I am Cheryl Glick, host of Healing from Within and author of The Living Spirit, and invite you to visit my website, CherylGlick.com, to listen to and read about the journey of the heart and soul as it moves through our human experiences to hopefully find peace, love, well-being, and the best of human nature through resilience and an acceptance of all. Shows may also be heard on webtalkradio.net and dreamvision7radio.com. Thank you.